about now? No? Talk louder. Okay. All right. Talk, talk louder. All right. This, this morning, uh, I have a few items that I want to introduce to you. This, this is not a MacBook in my hand. This is a much greater, better Commodore 64. This is not an iPhone in my hand. This is a, a better telegraph. And this is not a Blu-ray disc. It is a much better, much greater VHS tape. Now, as I'm describing these items to you, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is why only that section laughed. <laughs> no, 
what is a Commodore 64? Is that like a Nintendo 64? Maybe some of you don't know what an N64 is. <laughs> what is a VHS tape, right? You might look at these things and, and say, well, you know, it's clearly a MacBook. You know, just don't overcomplicate it. Just tell it like it is. But for, for those of you who do know what these references are, perhaps describing these items in this way kind of uses already established categories in our mind to better understand what these items are. Right? It, it helps us in, in one sense to uh, understand how similar they are in the sense that, well, okay, look, an iPhone is a better telegraph. That, that must mean it's a device for communication. Or, you know, oh, a MacBook is a better Commodore 64. That, that means it's a computer, right? But it's also a very different computer from those that came out like 40 years ago. Right? These categories also helps us to see how different they are, how much better that what we have now is compared to what came before. You know, a Blu-ray is, a, in a sense, a better VHS tape. We can watch movies on both of them, but it's more, too, right? We don't have to be kind and rewind anymore. If you don't know what that means, then the people in this section can ask the people who laughed. You know, categories, they, they help us understand something that is new to us. It works when we try to describe new things using something old, right? I don't know if any of you have tried to explain what TikTok or TikTok dances are to your, to your parents, or maybe your parents get it, right, because they're hip. Uh, try explaining it to your grandparents. You know, yeah, there you go. I don't know if there's an equivalent category for TikTok dances back then, but you know, if there were, it probably would be helpful. It works the other way too, right? When we try to explain old things with something that is more modern or new to help us understand, right? You might try to explain what a floppy disk is to your kids, and it's not just the save icon in Microsoft Word. But you might, you know, use a USB drive or something as a point of reference. Now, imagine if we didn't have these categories to work with. Imagine going, going back to the, the New Testament church and trying to explain to Paul or Peter what an iPhone is, right? You can't just say that an iPhone is, an, is a phone that can do so much more because they don't even have that category of phone in their minds. So categories are, are helpful. You know, they're helpful in understanding advances in technology, but they're also helpful in understanding the unfolding of God's plan of salvation throughout the course of human history. You see, when, when Jesus Christ came, it was, it was helpful for the Jewish people to have certain categories uh, to, to make sense of who he is and what he came to do. That is why the Old Testament is so important for us. It lays the foundation and the, the context for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you know, we've seen about Jesus being the Lamb of God, but that doesn't really mean anything if we don't really understand the significance of the Lamb. If anything, it's, it's a bit strange. Why don't we just call him the, the goat of God or the, the turtle of God or the cheetah of God or the, I don't know, the scorpion of God? Even things like sin and sacrifice loses its meaning or its significance. Now, in our passage this morning, there's one particular category that gets brought up, the high priest. 
You see, the author of Hebrews is writing this letter to readers who kind of have that background, that history, who have that established category of high priest, who knows kind of what that means, why it's important, why it's relevant. And the author of Hebrews can kind of take that category and apply it to Jesus and say not only does Jesus fulfill those priestly functions, but he does it perfectly and he does it better. He is a great high priest. Something that we've seen about multiple times this morning. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is what God is saying to us this morning that since we have a great high priest, let us then hold fast and draw near. Now today, right, we don't have high priests. That is not a, a category that exists for us. You know, there are priests in, in the world that we live in, but that's kind of different. And, and it also, also has like really different connotations depending on who you ask and what you read about in the news. We, we could also maybe use analogy to try and better understand what this high priest is, right? We could say things like, you know, Jesus is our defense attorney. That's a very common way to describe it. But again, like with any analogy, it's not a perfect equivalent, and so if we simply have the analogy, we miss out on all the, the biblical context and the biblical categories, we might end up with a very different picture of Jesus. Fortunately for us, the author of Hebrews in our passage is, is answering three questions for us this morning. What is a high priest? He kind of talks a little bit about that. Second, why is Jesus better? And then third, what difference does that make for us, for them and for us? So we're going a little bit out of order in our passage this morning, you know, it, but I think it's going to help us understand or maybe follow uh, the author's intent, his flow of thought. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me uh, to Hebrews chapter, we're going to start in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. So the first question, what, what is a high priest? Verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so what we find here right off the bat is that high priests are human mediators. They were chosen to represent mankind, but in order to represent them, it meant they had to be part of who they're representing. Right? Angels are not high priests. Animals are not high priests. The role of the high priest was, was given by God, appointed by God to a human. That human, that person was going to be a bridge, a mediator between God and men and women. That role was extremely important because of the problem of human sinfulness of this broken relationship and the need for, for people to be reconciled to God. And so what did the high priest do? They, the high priest offered sacrifices for sins. We read about that in verses one and four. This act and responsibility of offering sacrifice. I think in, in, in the back of the, the author's mind, he's really thinking to the ultimate expression, which is on the day of atonement. Some of you who are part of, I think, maybe the Lexington High School system or other school systems, you guys get Yom Kippur off, right? That's, that is the Day of Atonement. The one day for the Jewish people back then, the one day in the year where the high priest would, would go behind the veil in their tabernacle, 
This was the Israelites, right? Back in the Old Testament, they would, uh, one day out of the year, the high priest would go behind the veil in the tabernacle to offer sacrifices to the most holy place where God dwelt among the people, and he would atone for the sins of the people. No one else was allowed behind the veil into the presence of God. And even the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day out of the year. So high priests, they offered sacrifices for sins, not just the sins of the people, but actually for their own sins too because they're sinners themselves. So the author of Hebrews is kind of bringing to mind this priestly system of sacrifices, something that his readers would have been aware of and uh, something that maybe you and I are somewhat aware of, even if it doesn't hit as close to home. It was something that Israel was well familiar with, but, but it was also, the system was also incomplete. It was inadequate. It was imperfect. You see, high priests were, again, human mediators, but they were sinful human mediators. And that is really important for us to know because it means a couple of different things. One, it meant that this process of being reconciled to God had to be repeated over and over and over again. That the the current sacrifices only serve the people insofar as getting them to the next sacrifice. That even the high priest would eventually grow old and die and then you'd have to find someone else to take up that position as mediator. You'd need to find a replacement. It also meant that even going through all of this process of offering uh, sacrifices, animal sacrifices, atoning for the sins of all people, it still meant that people's access to God was limited. Not everyone could go behind that veil. Only the high priest and only once a year. So what is a high priest? High priest is a human mediator who offers sacrifices for the sins of the people and for their own sins. That's what we kind of start getting at in, our, in, our, in these first four verses. It's a, it's a category, it's a system that the, the readers, the original readers would have understood. Now, the author of Hebrews is now taking that category and kind of showing how it's going to point forward to Jesus Christ, how it sets itself up for Jesus Christ. And so in verses five to 10 now, we move to the second question, right? Not just what is a high priest, but why is Jesus better? And so the claim is made, right, that Jesus is the great high priest. Not just any high priest, but the great high priest. There's this already established category Right, that is helping the readers make sense of who Jesus is and what he came to do. In the same way that, that the high priest was appointed by God and the high priest you know, didn't choose himself, he's making a parallel here, a comparison that, look, also Christ is a high priest in that he did not exalt himself, but he was appointed by God. But at the same time, there's something different about Jesus. Something different about Jesus being a high priest, right? It's it's this category, but at the same time, it's pointing to something greater, something better, something entirely different, right? Isn't this what our uh, sermon series is called? Hebrews, Jesus is better. 
We, we split it up into three sections, right? Uh, we have a better redeemer. He is a better, we have a better redemption. And then that, that last section, therefore, right? That talks about all the implications of, of the first two points. So two verses are cited. Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 110-4, you are a priest forever, forever after the order of Melchizedek. And both of these passages have kind of already been mentioned in Hebrews. But I think there's, there's something special here about kind of juxt, uh, putting these two verses together. Because when we put it together, we kind of see Jesus' sonship and his priesthood side by side. The fact that the, the great high priest is not just a human, but he is the son of God. Or, as we said a couple weeks ago, right, that, that more accurately, he is uh, God the Son. Now, how is that possible, though, right? This would have been a question that the, the readers would have been thinking about. You see, in order to be a high priest, you need to be part of the line of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. At the same time, the Messiah, the Son of God, was going to be from the line of David, right, the tribe of Judah. So how, how can it be the same person? Shouldn't it be two different people Fulfilling two different functions. And I think this is why this guy, Melchizedek, gets brought up. It's incredibly significant. Melchizedek was this person in the Old Testament that we, we run into in one of the er- earlier books. He's both king of Salem and priest of God Most High. So in this one person, there were two offices. So even with the introduction of Melchizedek, there's this category, again, that's, that's getting brought up, a category that is being applied to Jesus. And again, Jesus is going to be better. It's going to be greater in him. Now, we're going to flesh this out a, a, a little bit more in a couple of weeks because uh, we're going to hit at it uh, uh, in chapter 7. But for now, for now, the point, the point is that Jesus, look, He's a high priest. He was also appointed by God, but there's a clear difference. Verses seven to nine, Christ was not a sinner. He was perfect. He was sinless. Verses eight to nine, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he was perfect Jesus is the great high priest in that he is not just the one offering the sacrifice for sin, but he is the one being offered as the sacrifice for sin. So one commentator, I like how he puts it. He says, what we and they needed was not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a, not a sinner, but a savior. This is why Jesus is better. Because in Jesus, his victory over sin and death is decisive. It is ultimate. It is final. There's no need to repeat the sacrifice offered. There is no need to replace the one offering the sacrifice. Because in Jesus, he is shedding his own blood for us. Not the blood of imperfect animals, not our own blood, though we deserved it, but his own body was broken for you and me. His own blood was shed for you and me. And in Jesus, we have someone who is fully God and fully man. We have a perfect mediator who 
tore that veil separating us from God so that we might truly experience and come into his presence and have that right relationship with God. Jesus is the great high priest. So, so what? Why does the author of Hebrews make such a big deal about that? I think this is where we get to our third hold fast passage. I think last week Minister Cola kind of listed out a couple of different passages and we said that even though we break up this sermon series into three sections, right? Better Redeemer, better Redemption, and therefore, we don't have to wait till all the way at the end in like, I don't know when we're gonna get to it, February, March, to, to talk about application, to talk about implications. There's these passages that are sprinkled throughout that start exhorting us, that start encouraging us how we to respond in light of these really heavy, important theological truths. So verses 14 to 16, this is where we go to the top of our passage. Since then, we have, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So since we have a great high priest, hold fast and draw near. There's these two very explicit encouragements for us in our passage this morning. Two things that, that the passage is, is exhorting us to. The first is this, hold fast our confession. There's two other places, I, I think at least two other places in, in the book of Hebrews that this word confession shows up. All right, so Hebrews 3.1, we read about earlier, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider, think about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Fast forward a few chapters later, 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So our confession is Jesus. Hope has a name. Salvation has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. It is a confession that is grounded not just with the faith in our hearts, but also on our lips, expressed on our lips. Right, Paul writes in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So hold fast, brothers and sisters. Crossbridge, hold fast. What does that mean? Commit to Christ. Persevere in it, no matter how difficult it might be. Though you might encounter doubts, which is okay. Though you might have questions, which is okay. Don't let go. We're given a reason for this. It's the the reason that gets expounded on in verses 1 to 10, and we already kind of hit on that. We, we get a, a, a preview of that in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's this connection, right, that, that the passage is drawing between a, a high priest who can sympathize with you, who understands what you're going through, the struggles that you have. There's a connection between that and us holding fast. How? Right, if you're coming here this morning worshiping online or in person, you're struggling today in faith, in your relationship with God, what encouragement might we have in knowing that we have a great high priest who gets us? I think part of the encouragement is this, that there's hope. This is what Christ came to do. What he has done, he's, he's given us hope through the cross, through the gospel. And also that we worship a God who, if you remember going all the way back to the Exodus sermon series way back when, a God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows. That Jesus understands what it's like to face temptation, to wrestle. He wrestled with that in the wilderness, right? When Satan came to tempt him for 40 days and 40 nights. He, he wrestled with it in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. And he overcame. Many of, you, uh, many of you know that Yin is in her final year of residency as a pediatrician. We've been married for five years. We've been together for, for a decade, for 10 years, a little over that. And we, we, when we first started dating, you know, it was pretty clear that she was going to be a doctor. People would always say to us, to me, man, you're marrying a doctor. It's going to be a long journey. (laughs) Pre-med, working in a hospital to boost your application, med school, residency, maybe a fellowship. Now, to be fair, right, people probably said something similar to Yang, wow, you're marrying a a pastor. (laughs) That journey never ends. So I'm not going to use that analogy because it doesn't fit as much because here I'm just getting started, right, at Crossbridge. But in any case, we, we've been attending this church for quite a while now, Crossbridge, CBCGB, and we've been very fortunate, right? There are many couples who have walked the same path that we're now walking. Many doctor spouse couples who encouraged us, who are encouraging us even now along the way, and we're so grateful to them. Many couples who I look at and think, it can be done. <laughs> well, I tell Yin and, or tell myself, you know, there is hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe similar things that we, we tell people who are maybe further along or not so f- far along in, in the path, who are just getting started. You know, we can hold fast. We can persevere. It can be done. There's comfort in knowing that. Hebrews is saying that since we have a great high priest, Jesus, let us hold fast. Look to him. That's the first exhortation. But if you think about what the passage is saying, right? He's saying, hold fast, draw near. These are these kind of two verbs that kind of seem Very different, right? You have this idea of holding fast, right? Standing firm in one place. And yet there's this action verb of drawing, actually not holding, but moving, drawing near. And so I think we're 
yeah, we're supposed to, we're being encouraged to hold our hope in Jesus, to stand firm, to wrestle where we are with God. But at the same time, what do we do with that hope? What do we do with that confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior? We have salvation and hope in him, that in him there's no condemnation. There's freedom for us. What do we do about it? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is, draw near. Don't draw back. Because of Jesus, we can actually draw near to God, to the throne of grace, and look how he describes the manner in which we draw near, right? This is, this is key for us, right? With confidence. Confidence is something that maybe some of us struggle with at times. But here, look, the confidence is not in ourselves, we know how sometimes how fickle or inconsistent sometimes we can be, right? But our confidence is in Christ who stands in our place as the great high priest. Our confidence is not in our ability to say to God, look at me, but look at him. But the challenge sometimes is we, we hold fast, right? That's something I think that we get, right? Let's believe, let's, let's study the scriptures, let's figure out how to articulate our faith. But it, it might, maybe for some of us, it's harder to, to draw near, right? We lack the, the confidence in Christ to approach God. And, and instead, we, we keep our, our distance. Do you feel that? Do you feel that gap between you and God this morning. Let, let me give you a, a visual example, perhaps. There's this uh, strange phenomenon that happens on Sunday mornings. Happens a lot in a lot of different churches, and it happens in our church too. So the phenomenon is this. No one wants to sit in the front pews. <laughs> I see a lot of empty spaces, and a, and a couple brave souls who are not afraid to approach the throne of grace. <laughs> Right? There's this huge gap between the pulpit and the people. Look, look, right, this is an analogy, right? Not a perfect equivalent. So, you know, the preacher's not God, all right? Let me be clear. The, the pulpit is not the throne of grace, right? But this is merely a visual analogy, example, what, what have you, for, for, for how sometimes we don't draw near, right? But instead we, we draw back, right? This is a visual example of maybe something spiritual going on in our lives, like we feel comfortable in the back or we feel comfortable where we're seated. But what if I were to actually come closer? <laughs> Draw closer to you. Does that, does that unsettle you? Does that make you uncomfortable? Right, like what is going on? Like I'm supposed to be up here, right? But I'm making my way like right here. What do we do, right? Like, I, I get that we have, we have reasons for, for sitting 
sitting here, right, and, and, and sitting back there. So I'm not trying to make a comment about that, right? Like what, one of my old seminary professors would often say to me that, you know, you can, one of the hardest things to change uh, for, for people is where they sit on Sunday mornings, right? You can ask them to read the Bible more. You could ask them to, you know, go to, go to church, attend service. But yeah, you can't ask them to, to change their seats on Sunday morning. But really, look, all of this is, is really to show that sometimes we, we see that throne of grace. We see God. And, you know, we're holding fast, but it's really difficult to draw near to God. We want to keep that distance. In fact, some of us, we might be drawing back. Some of us want to sit here. Some of us want to sit further back. And there's always this distance between us and God. Why? Luther said something along the lines of this. He, he said something like, it is not enough for a Christian to believe that Christ was instituted high priest to act on behalf of men unless he also believes that he himself is one of these men for whom Christ was appointed high priest. The point this morning is not that Jesus is a great high priest, or the great high priest, it is that Jesus is your great high priest. He intercedes for you. He stands in your place. He is your hope. He is the one in whom you can have confidence to approach God, the throne of grace, to draw near and not draw back. In the New Testament, the people of God are, are called a lot of different things. Right? They're called the elect, they're called faithful brothers and sisters, children of God, a holy nation. But repeatedly, if you kind of look through, you know, especially Paul's letters, we find him calling the people of God saints. Saints. And absent from this list is the church collectively being identified, being called sinners. And I think that is so powerful, so important. That's huge for us. Right, Paul is not saying that Christians do not sin. We do. We definitely do. The point is that it's not that we can never refer to ourselves as sinners. There's an appropriate time and place. We ought to think about it like that. But at the same time, because of Christ, right, Paul's emphasis in, in continuing to call the followers of Christ saints is that we've been given a new identity. We are a new creation there's no condemnation. There's freedom for us. And in that sense, we are saints, not sinners. And all of this is because of Christ who is our confidence. So, brothers and sisters, let us hold fast. Let us be encouraged to hold fast and draw near to God this morning to boldly approach him. Let's pray. Father God, gracious Father, we give thanks for Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who is our righteousness, who is our hope, who is our confidence, because in him we are more than conquerors. We don't have to conquer because victory has already been decided, won, secured through Jesus for us. Help us, Father, this morning to hold fast and come before you each and every day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.